Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye, and my very best friend. Did I ever let you know you're my best friend? <laughs> Gotta make it awkward. Your only friend, bro. That's true. Uh, it's, not, it's, like, it's like getting the sketchies. But uh, Austin, man, what have you been up to? What have I been up to? Let me think. Let me think. Let me think. Um, I've been researching a little bit more into the AI space. So oh, God, going into the too. winter, it's a, it's a little <laughs> bit slower right now. Right. Like AI space in, in terms of like, what could we use to leverage in our own sort of personal brand to make life a little bit easier? So taking short form content, chopping it up into, I'm sorry, long form content, chopping it up into short form content. We talked about it in another podcast episode. I don't, I'm trying to remember who it was with. I think it was with Tom's story. We talked about Opus. Uh, I don't know. Have you heard of that, Mighty? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I think it was a uh, pay. Maybe, maybe someone, yeah. someone, someone, but yeah. you've heard of that before. Or no, Op- no, Opus? I heard about it from you guys when we talked about it in the podcast. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just to reiterate really quickly, basically it's a pretty cool tool. You take this long form content and you throw it on there, obviously subscription based, and then it pulls out viral sort of moments uh, and it ranks it from zero to a hundred and describes why it could be viral. It includes all of the caption it edits it for you. It's not perfect. But yeah. it makes your life so much easier because when you're trying to find those like 30 second, one minute reels, it it just really simplifies it. So I've used it for a couple of, uh, if you guys follow me on Instagram, uh, I used it for the last couple of posts uh, with my podcast feature on Irwin and looking to play around with that a little bit more to see how it goes. Um, and just go figuring out, cr- no, fuck, far from it. Yeah, dude. He, he ain't going <laughs> uh, I feel no like shit. a loser. I got like 10 likes on it. 20 <laughs> likes maybe. <laughs> I want to. I want to believe I'm shadow banned, but I'm not. People just don't like me. It's just me, you, and Lillian, and they're like, "That's it." Yeah, they're like generous people. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, trying to think what else there was, and then also like, how could you use AI to just like produce more content? Another thing that we're talking about is like transcribing these conversations we're having. Well, not this because this is stupid, but transcribing <laughs> our actual podcast itself. And then getting a summary of what's going on and turning that into an article, right? Spending five minutes doing that and creating long form article, just seeing what we can do to spend minimal effort, but recycle material, you know, maybe you throw that in a newsletter or whatever, but I've been, because with things being a little bit slower right now, just figuring out what you can do to improve your branding, improving your business. And I really think that AI, you know, real estate investors are slow to adopt things. So if you can adopt things pretty quickly, you're at an advantage against everyone else before everyone else starts doing it as part of their regular business. Yeah, yeah, you're not you're not wrong. Um, I think there's a lot that you could adopt. I think it's what do you really do with your time and what your subscriptions and how much fucking shit are you trying to leverage and use at the same time? Because yeah, uh, a lot of the stuff is expenses up front that then pay all. Oh, later. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. We'll see. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'd say I'm kind of going through the same exercise. I'm trying to figure out in line with whatever kind of growth targets that I'm trying to set for next year. What is it going to require for me to get there? Like one is obviously on the social media side, like the commitments I would require there to help on that side. And then the other is like even just operations and stuff like that. We'll see. We'll see where everything gets to. The market is the biggest mm-hmm. fucking curveball, man, because you can set whatever goals you want. But if the market's not on your side, like uh, you just got to sit back and, and chill, right? So we'll see, man. We'll see. We'll see what, what are you seeing on that side? Like not on the mortgage side, but you speak with a lot of realtors. Uh, are things picking up right now you and i were talking about this right before as well i think it's an interesting moment where sentiment is probably picking back up yeah. uh, it sounds like it's picking back up with some of my borrowers and, and purchasers and sellers and even on properties that i'm offering on right now like i'm getting screwed and or, or you know conversations are disappearing midway because the market's picking up right you and i were talking about a property that you're looking at where where there was a, a bunch of bookings or, or what there were there were no showings available limited showings available until the weekend right so I would say that the market is picking up, but people are ultimately like, we're right in the middle of holidays, right? So like as much yeah. as market sentiment can pick up, like people have their social commitments and stuff like that that take priority over, hey, let's go check out this property or whatever, right? So we might have like a small window of opportunity. Does this stay? That's really the question. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the answer it's, is. It's, it's, uh, 
honestly, like I, I wonder if we're seeing, you know, as investors. Did you get no, I, I don't know if it's a dead cap. I, I, I think there's going to be a recovery. It depends. By dead cap bounce, you're implying that things are going to drop. Maybe, maybe things drop again, but I do. Yeah. Like we always have our ears to the ground and realistically, we know what's happening before the data shows it because yeah. the data lags. And like to highlight what you were saying there, dude, like that listing came out yesterday and walkthroughs are fully booked until Saturday. And it, as to your point, it's fucking December, dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That is not Neither. a normal December. Uh, so I wasn't on the preamble last week, but I think the one before that we were talking about a property in Scarborough, maybe that I was looking at and like, dude, like yeah. that guy's been struggling to sell that shit since 2022. He did like hundred K cut, hundred K cut. And I can't remember where he ended up, but it was listed at like low nines and then it sold for like 900 flat. And, and I was like midway through, like trying to talk like a VTB and it's interesting. Like it started off with, okay, yeah, we'd entertain a VTB. And then it's, it went to, there's not a chance for giving a VTB in second position. And then it went to ghost. And I'm like, this yeah. guy fucking sold the property hundred percent that that all happened within the course of like a week. And it was like, after, I want to say it was after the, the yield started dropping, but before the BLC announcement, um, announcement yeah. date, right. So it's, uh, yeah, man, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster. Let's, I'd say let's wait and see what happens, but yes. Also speaking of that, what's, what's the big news? The federal reserve is, uh, the committee again, this is the committee, right? The committee is predicting a 75 basis point cut next year, which is a huge fucking change in the narrative of holding things higher for longer. So the Dow Jones, all-time highs, dude. All-time fucking yeah, highs yesterday. Yeah, RSP portfolio finally fucking recovered. <laughs> I logged in randomly. I'm like, I don't remember having this much money in here. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Oh, dude, it's, it's wild. I wish. So I put my uh, RSP in sort of like cash equivalent, uh, oh, uh, high yielding, <laughs> you know, those, the one, the ones that make like four or 5% like cash.to. Yeah. 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 Um, fuck. I, yeah, <laughs> I dude, feel the it, well. Why would you touch RSP? That's the one thing that you just like leave it. Like whatever happens happens. It goes it's to true. It's true. Yeah. But I was like four to 5% yield, like sort of pretty guaranteed. I was like, all right, all right pretty safe <laughs> bet, but uh, I feel so stupid about that. But the uh, 75 basis point cut. So we're seeing the Canadian bond, the five-year um, bond deal just dropped like a rock. I think I was just so that, I was looking at it like this 3. morning. 3.3, right? 3. Like in the 3.2s. <laughs> it's in the 3.2 range. I, I like, just think about it. After I think it was like just... Pricing. I'm like literally just like, yo, I don't want to keep resubmitting every single day because this is moving like every single day. So I just told my clients, I'm like, yo, I'm going to resubmit. Because some of them have like closings in February and March and stuff like that that they just like locked up already. And I'm like, yo, we'll resubmit in like January at this point because... Dude, anything real crazy is gonna happen so to put things in perspective yo october 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 was uh i'm looking at it right now 4.4 percent right that's when the fixed was like close to seven yeah now yeah. we're at 3.275 it's fine <laughs> it's crazy yeah. bonds are supposed to be a safe investment but our safe investment's really that volatile <laughs> it goes shoots up shoots down it's all over the place Dude, this is uh, interesting times, man. But I, I also can't. So I think you should take it with a level of skepticism, right? Like they also said that rates would stay high for long. The same people that said that rates would stay low for long then said rates would stay high for long, right? And now we're stuck it's in true. this. Oh, we're probably going to see some cuts come next year. And I think ultimately it's, you know, just buy for today's rates and like ignore what the fuck is happening for it tomorrow. Yeah. You and I have talked about this. A little bit of being an idiot is great sometimes, right? Just like having like blinders on and not really knowing what the fuck you're doing is sometimes all you need to like, have a little bit of confidence, right? Sometimes you do have to just tune out the noise. Anyways, enough chit-chatting from us. Let's just jump straight into the podcast. We have Danielle Unsworth. I'm sure a lot of you are already familiar with who Danielle is. Um, she has a huge social media presence and she started investing a while ago and has accumulated a portfolio of well over 100 units, not only in Canada, but in the US as well, and even Turks and Caicos. She's super passionate in real estate investing and in fact also founded her own meetup, the Women's Investor Network Canada Club, and it's all across the province as well. And she's also a real estate coach. We go into so many different topics from how she started off investing, going through a mindset shift, going into the multifamily space, and even recently exploring with newer build multifamily properties. This is an episode you don't want to miss out. Again, we go into so many different topics that is going to be relevant for you as an investor going into the new year. So without further ado, we're going to jump right on in. But before we do so, make sure to like, subscribe, share it with a friend, give us a five-star review, and let's jump right on in. Just a heads up before we get started, this podcast is all about providing you information, not financial or legal advice. 
So if you need the real deal for your situation, hit up a professional. We can't promise you our information is always up to date or accurate, and we're not responsible for any investment decisions you make based on it. Markets change, information change, you know the drill. Anyways, thank you for hanging out with us responsibly. Let's jump right on in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Danielle Unsworth. Danielle, how is everything going? Uh, it's going amazing. Thank you. Awesome. So for anyone that doesn't know you, Danielle, you've obviously got quite the presence. I feel like you, you've done a couple of speeches and presentations that I've been to as well. But for anyone that doesn't know you, why don't you kind of give everyone some background on yourself, how you got started and yeah, your entire story. Sure. I came to Canada as a, I was a refugee a long time ago. So I was always, you know, taught to have really strong work ethics. And it was always like the immigrant dream to own real estate. So I actually bought my first property at 24. I was a full-time waitress and a student. So it was very, very challenging to get that first property. But I didn't want to pay rent. That was my main goal. I didn't want to pay rent. I wanted to own my own property. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I made it happen. And uh, I can share that story another day because there were a lot of mistakes made. But yeah, I bought my first property at 24. And then I bought another property with my husband. And we learned about refinancing um, through a commercial. So this was years ago, like 2008, 2009. And at the time, there was still cable, you know, TV. And there was a commercial about how you would get cash back if you switched your mortgage to this bank. And so I went and the advisor talked to me about it. And that's how I re discovered refinancing. And so it just kind of like opened up my eyes. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is amazing. And so I was able to use that refinance and buy another property. And that's kind of how I got started in real estate. And I didn't do anything for about 10 years because that was the only strategy I knew was buy property, wait till the value, you know, would go up and then you refinance, buy another one. So I only bought maybe three or four properties in 10 years. And then during COVID, I, I was you know, really ready to take it to the next level. I invested in coaching programs, educated myself, and I learned about, you know, raising capital, joint ventures, and just switching from single family homes to multifamily investing instead. And that's where my portfolio really grew. And I was able to, you know, help others learn about these different strategies as well. And it's been really important for me to teach women how to get started uh, as well, because I didn't know about all of these strategies and how I really started. So it was kind of by accident and then really making that commitment to educate myself and just persevering and learning new strategies and adapting, especially in the last couple of years, switching strategies and continuing to learn. Okay. That's interesting. That was a long period of time to compress in a pretty short period of time. So, so thank you. <laughs> Danielle. I think the getting started story is important for a lot of people because it just shows like everyone started with something different. I started like scraping together stuff for a pre-con. Austin started um, working in sweatshops, right? So like everyone just starts on like their own like journey, right? And we all end up kind of at the same um, or, or the, it seems like the same, but like everyone's doing completely different stuff as well, right? Um, so I'm curious, 2020 is when you got started or kind of re got started. What made you start that, that search up? Like what made you get back into things? How did you get back into things? Right. I know coaching programs. I know you were doing a bunch of stuff, but I'm just curious, what was the most effective for you? To be honest, we're really impacted during COVID. My husband is an aircraft um, engineer, so he was laid off because there were no flights, right? No airplanes to fix. So he was laid off. And I remember us thinking like, okay, like what's her plan here? You know? And so we had like a few rental properties and I thought, OK, well, what, what do we do? And I started listening to podcasts. And during one of the podcast episodes, there was a woman, an investor, and she was duplexing single family homes. And then I remember thinking, OK, well, we have something similar to what she was talking about and that, that had an unfinished basement. So I actually ended up reaching out to her to ask her, can you help me do what you're doing? I have a basement unit. I want to create more income. And so that's kind of how I started. I hired her as my first coach. I ended up creating a legal basement suite. I created more income for us. And then after that, at that time, rates were still low. So I was able to refinance. I pulled out tons of equity at that time because um, not only did it increase the value because of the basement unit, but also properties 
were going up like crazy during that time. So I kind of like was double dipping with that property. And then with that, I just took that money and then just started investing in more properties because I saw the opportunities that were kind of, you know, creeping up during that time because I had invested since 2008. Right. So at that time, that's kind of like it was a similar environment. So I was like, okay, we need to like double down right now. And so that's kind of what I, I ended up doing. It was my first duplex conversion strategy. I think that's interesting because I was, I was literally talking about this with my wife yesterday and I was trying to show her Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is basically, story short, the entire thing. She was just like, I don't want to see it, but uh, I'll explain <laughs> oh, it to no. yesterday. So like it, the, the long story short, you need to have your, your physiological needs met first, right? So like your own hey. family's financial stability and, and that kind of stuff before you focus on investments. Because I've talked to people that have been laid off and this and that and like whatever is happening in their life. And they think real estate is going to be like the solution for them. And I'm like, bro, like you got to fix X, Y, and Z over here first and then kind of come here and try and work on your ideal life later. Right. Um, yeah. so, no, that's good. But I also think like you stood out amongst a lot of people, like your growth was pretty fast and we don't like to do it too much on the past. Right. And today, what you're doing today is, and I, I don't think you talked enough about that actually today, but you're doing a lot of like capital raising for multiple projects and, and bigger projects, apartment buildings. Right. So you kind of like skyrocketed through like the steps. Right. But talk about that journey. Like, well, what was that journey? Like, cause yeah, the coaching programs and everything and taking action was good, but you kind of went pretty fast after that too. So what I found was really sharing my story. Like when I started sharing what I was doing, like even the basement suite, all I did was post on, like, I didn't even have a YouTube channel. I just created one. I would, you know, use my phone. I would be like, Hey, this is week one. This is what I'm doing today. Honestly, it was sharing my story. People really related to me because I was just literally sharing what I was doing. So I would just share on social media. I would share on YouTube. I would tell my friends and family. I started attending virtual events. I really put myself out there. Like there was a lot of effort going out in terms of sharing who I was, what I was doing, what I wanted to do. And people just like really just resonated with what I was trying to do. Um, my friends and family were my first private lenders. So I started raising money because I was sharing, like I had a really good friend and she saw what I was trying to do with that basement unit. And she literally said to me, Hey, Danielle, like I have some money saved. If you need it, let me know. I'll lend it to you because I know what you're trying to do here. You know? And I was like, Oh my God, like that just was everything. And she wasn't going to charge me interest. And I was like, no, this is, uh, you know what I mean? This is a loan you know, we're friends. I don't want to just take your money. We're going to make it into a promissory note, et cetera. So that's really how I started my journey was sharing everything, being honest, being authentic, and just being transparent. Like I was telling people what I was doing and if they needed help, I was going to, you know, offer what I've learned so far. I was doing like free Zoom meetups with people who were just starting out on how to buy their first property. So I gave a lot during that time, I was like, it was all output. And then everything just came right back. Like people started messaging me, asking me questions, wanted to do partnership deals with me. And so that's really how I grew was my output. And I mean, we did that 30 day social media challenge and I was like all in, you know, I was sharing everything I was doing, all the tips that I had learned in the last 10 years. And people just like really just connected with me. And so I think that really is the secret. Like you have to put yourself out there. Yeah, exactly. And I think not enough people do that when people I think sometimes when people re put yourself out there, it's simply just making an educational real estate post, right? But sometimes it's more than that, like sharing your actual ups and downs and who mm -hmm. you are as a person. Otherwise, if someone doesn't authentically know who you are as a person, it's hard for someone to trust and commit capital with you. I think you've done a pretty good job in sort of doing that along your journey. Um, it sounded like you were raising money on on privates for your first sort of couple of projects. At what point did you start looking more towards the joint venture route of things? Could you walk us through your mindset shift towards that? Because I know for me, when I was getting into joint ventureship, you got to convince yourself it's okay to take people's money. It's not always a normal thing to do. It's like, oh, like someone's trusting you with a few hundred thousand dollars. Do I have the confidence in myself? Could you walk us through sort of that journey? how you got involved in that and how you were able to scale that out? Sure. So for me, like at the beginning, I never even really thought about it as like receiving other people's money. It was more like, okay, 
How do I help them generate more income to have more comfortable lives for their families? And so because for me, it was real estate. I was able to create cash flow for myself. And so I would have friends and families who have other hobbies that are quite expensive, right? So I have a girlfriend, she rides horses. I have families that have really expensive judo classes for their kids. So I'm like, how do I help them create that income so they have that extra $500, $1,000 every month? So when a deal would come, I would just look through the numbers and then I would think, okay, what would this deal look like if, you know, X person came into the deal and worked with me? And I would just share that deal. I'd be like, hey, this is what I have. This is what I'm working on. This is how much it can generate. This would be your share. We split it 50-50. And these are all my friends and family. So I know already what their situation is and what would help them. And a lot of times they we just go over the numbers together. I would ask them questions. And because they know that I've been doing it for a long time, that's where the confidence comes in, right? And they've seen like my progression as well. And also when you progress, your lifestyle changes a little bit as well. So they're able to see, oh my God, like Danielle, you're able to do this, this, this. Like I want to be able to do that too. So how can I do that? And this is how, so this is what I'm doing. So if you want in, like I can help you. So I think looking at it, from a helping someone perspective versus raising capital, I think is very different. And that's how I was able to do that. I was able to help find deals, help people create more income for their families and their hobbies. You know, it's like the goal is to be more comfortable in your everyday life, right? Like I'm not trying to help people buy jets. I, I want to help people live comfortably and have like the means to do the extras on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And along the capital raising journey in these partnerships, I found, and I, I don't know how your relationships are like with your JVs. Uh, generally speaking, my relationships with my JVs are fantastic. But there's always, like, as you grow, you learn how to better set expectations as oh. an investor, right? Because there are some things that may happen that you may not have necessarily known about because you're still growing as an investor as well. Because oh. you walk us through some of the obstacles and the hiccups of doing joint ventures as well, because I don't think that gets talked about enough. People are just like, raise it. um, And then you're 50-50, sell it in five years, you're going to make money. Like, what are the actual obstacles and hiccups? Yes. So joint ventures are amazing when everything goes well and everybody does what they're supposed to do, right? But as you know, like things happen in life and people need to either, you know, exit a deal early or then there's cash calls because X, Y, and Z happened at the property. And so, like you said, setting those expectations at the beginning is really important. What I do is I also make sure that people read the actual agreement. Because, you know, sometimes there's a lot of paperwork. So I like to go through it with my partners to make sure that they understand. And if they have any questions, we go over it together. Because Sometimes you just assume that someone will understand what you're saying and what the expectations are and they'll say yes, but maybe because they're too shy to ask the questions, they don't want to look silly, et cetera. So I just go, I'm proactive about it, right? So I'll say like, worst case scenario, this is what can happen. And I like to give them that worst case scenario because it really is worst case scenario. And if you can handle it, then you're going to be okay. So we always do best case, like, what we expect and then like worst case is what's going to happen are you okay with that and so i try to be make things really realistic and just you know the only things i would say if you are looking into joint venture partnership is making sure that you know you have a long-term relationship with the partner or you have some other connection maybe like a previous like small lending deal with them already so you've already seen like a full cycle of their work ethics and their values etc because sometimes there can be miscommunications and when it comes to capital it's very sensitive right people don't want to come across like they didn't know something at the beginning so definitely make sure that you set the expectations go over everything together and then For me, I keep constant communication with my partners. We do quarterly uh, reports, updates, but also in between. Like anytime there's something I want to share, I send out emails, et cetera. So there's always that two-way communication, which I think is super important. Let me ask you about false expectations of conversations that you have where people sort of get in. Like I will say that um, sometimes when you have these conversations, because social media, like 
generally taints real estate in one way. People come yeah. into the initial consultation saying like, oh, like I want all my money out in six months. Yeah. Uh, I want things to be cash flow positive. I want ABC. And then you sort of have to reel them back into reality. What are sort of the false expectations that a lot that people, the common ones that people come into when you have these conversations that you sort of have to debunk? Yes. So I definitely uh, the capital repayment as planned is definitely one of those expectations, you know, especially now. Right. Like these are all partnerships that happened, let's say, two, three years ago. And let's say you're supposed to refinance in a year and get all of that money out. All of a sudden you only have like 60 percent out. And now they're not, you know, their partnership is kind of like, OK, well, what's going on? Well, because I had already explained the worst case scenario and they were OK with it that kind of you go back to that conversation and you say, hey, do you remember when we talked about worst case scenario? Well, this is actually not worst case scenario. It's actually in between because we did pull some money out, but it's not everything. And, you know, the silver lining is that we always still own the property at the end of the day, right? Like you still have an asset. We got to hold it. And based on my experience, the longer you hold, the prices will go up and then you refinance later. So I think that's definitely one of the expectations. I always ask, like, when do you need this money by? What happens if you don't get all of your capital back? You know, like, do you need to pay your line of credit or what? Where is this the source of this money? So if their answers are not satisfactory to those questions, then you kind of have to think maybe this is not the best strategy for you. So I think that's definitely one of them. So like getting that money back at the exact time, there's always delays. So I always mention that there are always delays. And then the second one is also like cash calls. Nobody expects them because they just think everything's going to work out OK. But cash calls are real. They do happen. And you don't if you don't have the money for the cash calls, there are consequences for yourself, but also for the other partners. If you have different partners, you have to figure out as a team how to mitigate that. And so that's definitely the second false expectation is like thinking that you're not going to have to put extra money in unless you're in a limited partnership, which is a different uh, conversation. But yes, so definitely second one is the cash call. And the third one is that as a passive investor, you don't have to do anything. You just put the money in in the joint venture and you're good. That's actually not quite the case. There's actually a lot of work you still need to do, right? You need to, you need to depending on what your status is in that partnership, maybe you need to make sure your credit score is maintained. You need to make sure you pay your taxes to keep the property at par. And also like you need to review all the documents. You need to maintain a certain position, right? So there's actually other things you need to do besides just providing the capital. So that's another false expectation. I think it's important. I think those are all like, a, they shouldn't be weeded out early on, essentially. And I think that's probably the biggest mistake myself and Austin made. Because you go from, like, 2019 was, we had no presence. Austin was just getting started on his presence. I barely had any presence. Going into 2020, where we maybe had a couple handful of people, and it was still like, okay, like, whoever's really willing to give us the capital, like, we'll work with you, bro, right? Like, we're, we're good. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously COVID happens and then there's a lot of deals everywhere. So then you really need the capital partners, right? Um, and people were scared to deploy capital at a point in time. And then it, the market quickly sh shifted to yeah. deals were hard and, and capital was everywhere, right? So you go through these market cycles and the problem is depending on how, I guess, uh, how much capital you've raised in the past or how much of a network you have, and uh, you may have an abundance of capital when you need it, but very rarely you have the deal and the capital ready to go, right? So you said concessions, either because you have the capital, you make concessions on the deal or vice versa. You have the deal, so you make concessions on the partners and kind of very similar to what you're seeing that the only partnerships that we've regretted are partnerships that we probably shouldn't have done from the get-go, right? We didn't do enough due diligence. They were French, let them in. You knew they were pulling money from like their parents and like they were borrowing it and not their own capital, mm -hmm. right? Which then puts them in a really tight situation, stuff like that, right? So, Danielle, I always want to jump ahead to, to what, what you're working on today, because I feel like that'll give our audience a little bit of an idea as to what you're up to today. And then we can kind of jump into, because I'm pretty sure I know the answer. So uh, we can kind of jump into to those projects and, and, and the shift that you made there. But yeah, so, so what are you working on today? So I've actually, uh, I made a, a reel recently that I'm shifting from the burst strategy, buying, you know, distressed properties, et cetera, and going towards like 
new properties or a different strategy, which in my case is um, a concept called infinite banking. So I'm trying to figure out different ways to create more, I would say, I don't want to call it passive investing, but like less hands on, <laughs> I'm going to say um, less active because um, I, you know, I will be on parental leave next year. So I'm trying to fit my investing strategy to my lifestyle, which is something I've discovered. Like you cannot be full force, go, go, go all the time. Things happen in your life that you need to shift your strategies, not just because of the market, but your own personal reasons. So during the time where I was growing and scaling my portfolio, that's what was really, you know, a good fit from my lifestyle. But since I'll be welcoming a new little one next year, I need to shift back. So I'm going to be looking at, um, you know, new builds where I don't have to worry about construction loans and hiring a construction team and overseeing all the renos and then dealing with all of those assets of real estate investing for that strategy. So brand new property, you, you know, like hiring a property manager. So very much so like, okay, you know, sending emails pretty much for approvals is where, where I want to be at. And then the infinite banking concept is also another in, like strategy that I want to start implementing, which creates, you know, long-term wealth building. So those are the two projects that I'm sort of focusing on now is new builds and um, infinite banking concept. So yeah, very exciting. So let's talk about that because the new builds, um, I'm assuming these are, are new build like uh, apartment buildings or are they new build like individual units? So the the last one we bought at three townhomes with a ground unit floor and we bought the block. So we were looking at another one that was eight. So four and they're separate titles. So if ever we needed to sell them off as one townhouse with a legal suite, we can. So right. I feel like that was honestly one of the like the easiest and best strategy property we we had last year and it's cash flowing like crazy because the rent is like is great because everything's brand new and we got CMHC financing for it so it's like 50 year amortization like that's what I want to focus on now you know like it's good I like it <laughs> okay interesting so so did you guys raise capital for that and um how did you how did you go go about that because you guys go straight to CMHC on that one so this one is a deal that my sister and I partnered with. So we used our own money for this deal and we used a broker to help us with the CMHC. So when we put the deposit, we just kind of like sat on it. And then when it was time to close, we reached out to our broker and he coordinated the CMHC financing and we were able to close with it like on time. So that was amazing. Wow. How long was that time? Could you walk us through sort of the financing aspect of that? Yeah. How long was that timeline between purchase and, and closing? What does that entail to get straight into CMHC by closing date? Yeah, so it was actually pretty seamless because we. I think it took maybe, I'm going to say four months or so because we put the deposit and then we literally didn't do anything. We just picked all of the materials for the new build. And then when it was getting close to the closing, we reached out to our broker and we told them like, listen, we have four to six months before closing. Can you get us started? Because we want CMHC financing. And that's when the MLI Select was kind of still fairly new. And so we, we were able to go with that product. And it was really great. Like he was able to walk us through it and we gave him all the information we needed, like, you know, like the, the rents within that area so that we could find, we, keep, we kept two out of the six units at affordable rent so that yes. we were able to qualify for the full point. Yeah. And because yeah. it's a new construction, right? We only need it two yeah. out of the uh, six units. And even at the affordable rates, it's still cash flowing because like I said, it, the rents there are great. It's brand new units. And he was able to coordinate. We just had to send him a bunch of paperwork. It took a bit longer, just the back and forth, but we were able to close like on time and we ended up getting... Um, five percent back of our deposit right because nice. we put in ten percent and we only needed five for a down payment so that was mm -hmm. the first time in history since 2008 that we actually received money back at closing which was phenomenal yeah no that's that's interesting it seems like a pretty cold strategy i guess when a new financing product comes out and mm -hmm. you understand it you can take advantage of these opportunities mm -hmm. right because now i imagine it's a little bit tougher because it's so backed up it would be like a year-long closing mm -hmm. before you can do that 
but that you you went in at the perfect timing. You saw mm-hmm, an opportunity yeah. and then you were able to take advantage of it. I wish we had you on earlier. So oh, no. <laughs> could be yes, doing no, the like same this, thing. Uh, and it was insane because when we put the deposit, it was, we bought it at 1.2 billion. And while we were holding it for like the year or so, it are, it went up in value because the the builders were not like selling as many. So there was supply and demand issues. So it went up in price and we put a couple of upgrades. So then when we went back to get it appraised for the financing, it went up like over 300 grand in equity just during that time. Mm-hmm. So it was just such a great deal. I wish I had bought more. <laughs> but it was our first time buying a, a new build like that. Yeah, yeah. So you bought four townhouses or was it three? It was three townhouses in one. And then three basement units. Exactly. So it's six units total. Yeah. That's interesting. Like we we definitely had haven't had anyone on here that that's done that. Like I've I've had clients that are trying to exit to REIT and stuff like that. Yeah. Which is a very similar concept because you're working with the builder yeah. early on. I guess was this part of a subdivision or is it a standalone project for that builder? No, it's part of the subdivision. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Yeah. So okay, so if you're gonna start raising capital for those type of projects, what does that look like? Right? Because so we were contemplating raising capital for that project, but because it was only a 10% deposit, we're like, oh, okay, we'll just put our own money. And then later on, had we closed at 25% or 30, then we would have raised the money for it. But because we went through the CMHC financing, we didn't need to. So if I was to raise capital for that project, I definitely would have, like there's different strategies depending on what kind of investor we're looking for. So for this one, because it's a brand new building and it's in another province, so it's in Alberta, so it's not in Ontario. So I would be thinking about, okay, who is the best fit? What kind of investor is the best fit for this property? So I would be maybe, you know, reaching out to investors and colleagues and friends that maybe live in Alberta, because a lot of times people like to invest where they can see the property versus Ontario investors. They might not be able to feel comfortable with the long distance investing. So that's what I would do. I would think about who is my perfect investor for this property and then make sure that they understand that, you know, we're using a CMHC product. It's not a regular conventional mortgage. And then going through the numbers and then making sure that they're comfortable holding it for at least five years, right? Like our plan is to hold it for as long as possible. Actually, our plan is to maybe use the IBC concept to mortgage this property later so that we can be our own mortgage uh, later. So that's a long-term plan. But uh, yeah, so those are the things I would think about. And then I would either talk about it with my friends and family and then maybe people that are already in that community in Alberta and see how they feel about it, ask questions, et cetera. So that's how I would go. So thinking about who is the best fit for the property and then making sure that they understand the product making sure they are okay with the timeline and then moving forward, I would have further discussions with them. So that's sort of, sort of the, the, the plan. And, and I'm sure everyone, everyone that's listening is essentially wondering, like, what do the splits look like on, on most deals, right? And, and I'd imagine like the, the thing with the burn, what, what I always tell any, any potential JV partner is like, really you're just giving like an interest-free loan, right? It's like I had a conversation today with someone oh. on, buying something that would have required basically like 200K as, as a capital investment. And they were like, oh, like I thought we'd be going 50-50 on the 200K. And I was like, no, like just wouldn't make sense. And in this case, I'm carrying the mortgage and I already made that concession because yeah. I was already going to go for it. And someone may know. I was just like, to be honest, dude, like if I'm carrying the mortgage and I'm putting up 100K, then all you're giving me is like a, a 100K and that too for like six yeah. until we bury this thing and then I'm giving you the money back. It just doesn't make sense, right? But with well, new multifamily like properties that you're not necessarily burying mm-hmm. does that change the splits like what what are normal splits in, in those type of transactions right yeah how's the deal structured yeah so that's a really good question so i usually take different things into consideration such as like who is carrying the mortgage right and then how much capital each investor is contributing and then we go from there so it depends, like for this one, obviously, because it's me and my sister, we both put the, the money in, it's 50-50. But let's say, for example, that she's going to be the one carrying the mortgage and I'm only putting in the capital and she puts nothing, that's still 50-50, we're doing different things. 
So really, it depends how comfortable you are allocating X percent to whichever role. So, you know, like there's the active partner, you're doing all the work, the person that comes in with the credit, the person that comes in with the capital. Sometimes the capital is split also between the person that's holding the mortgage and the active investor as well, because maybe they want a bigger share. So I feel like the split is actually the most flexible component of any deal. You can make it whatever way you want, as long as everybody feels comfortable and confident in those numbers. So Mm -hmm. if let's say I was doing all the work for this property and my sister was also doing the work and then we have one person that brought in all the money, then her and I would be 25-25 and then the capital investor would be the 50%. And then we all hold the mortgage, like we're all liable. So you see how like it really depends on what people can contribute. Because sometimes you can't qualify for a mortgage without another person, right? or they just don't want to be liable for a mortgage. So then you put all those factors into consideration. And then as long as everybody's happy and everybody understands their roles, I think that's the most important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned the uh, infinite banking concept. Could you very briefly touch upon that? What piqued your interest and how you're looking at implementing mm-hmm. that in sort of your lifestyle going forward? Yes. So this is actually a strategy that I discovered like five years ago, but I didn't understand it. So at that time, I was like, this makes sense. I I don't understand. So I parked it because I'm not going to carry a strategy that I don't understand, right? But it started coming back in the last, I'm going to say, six months to a year. I started hearing more about it. And then I started actually taking the time to look and, you know, actually understand it better. At that time, I was really busy with the real estate component, so I didn't want to focus, you know, on other things. But I started reading about it. I started talking to people who are doing it, and it makes sense to me. So it's essentially, I'll just, I'll do my best because I'm just learning. As this is, I literally just got approved from my first policy like two weeks ago. So and I just put in my first deposit, so it's brand new. But essentially, is. The goal is to take your money, put it into an insurance policy, borrow from it, kind of like a HELOC, and then you take it out as a loan and then you invest it in XYZ. So that way your money is actually still invested here in the insurance and then you're borrowing it to invest here. So it's very similar to a HELOC. That's how I understand it. And then because you own the policy, you decide how much and when to pay back. And because it's a life insurance policy, it's kind of guaranteed like, you know, everybody's going to die at some point. So that's how they're going to get paid out at that time. But you get to use and leverage that money while you're still alive. That's kind of like the general idea. But I will let you know how it goes. It's only been a few weeks, but I really love the concept. And I see it as sort of like another asset class to put on like in my investing portfolio. And yeah, I, I find that individuals, if it's it's a strategy where obviously you need to be well liquidated to, to be yeah. take advantage of it, right? So so that's a big thing for those who are earlier on in the journey, a little bit difficult. But when you're 10, 15 years down the road, you have that equity built up. It's something that you could do. And I believe, again, not an expert, but there's some tax advantages of that strategy as well. But of course, we will eventually bring on someone who specializes mm-hmm. in it, talk more yep. about it. But that's fantastic to hear that you're sort of branching out into other things. Another catch is because sometimes it sounds like too good to be true, right? But there are a few like things that you have to to meet in order to qualify. Like you have to qualify for the life insurance policy, right? So you still need to be in like a healthy condition and able to be approved. And then, like you said, you do need some uh, liquidity to be able to invest. And then also the third one is to understand how to use the strategy. So you do need to work with someone that can help you implement the strategy. It's kind of like the Smith maneuver, right? You need to work with an accountant that understands how to do that. So those are like the three key factors using this strategy. But I am working with someone who's an expert. um, So I'm really excited to see what happens. Like it's so new. And like I literally got my email confirmation before coming on to say like it's been deposited. So I'm going to go check it out after our podcast to see where it went and see how how that whole uh, life policy works. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I, you know, me and Austin both like looked into it. I, and I hear about a lot of investors that get it, 
I feel like maybe I'm missing something in, in like my understanding of it. I'm like, I, I don't see the appeal for me, but it doesn't mean I don't see it for like someone else, right? Like if you're someone that has a lot of capital, like I feel like the amount of capital that we have, we're constantly like deploying it into something, right? And it's coming back at some point in the future and stuff like that. And I was just like, why would I put my money into a policy and then pay interest to get my money back, right? Um, <laughs> unless the main, like the main, if your primary concern is if you pass away, then in theory, the interest you're paying is just an exchange for an insurance policy, which I somewhat understand, right? But, you know, I, I think it's, it's good for different people, right? I think we don't have kids yet. Like I'm dying. Yeah. It's not the I think that's the big thing. We don't have yeah, kids. Exactly. I believe there's an aspect of it where you could pass on your real estate to your estate with reducing the tax burden or the capital burden of it. I don't know fully, but yeah, likewise, I'm not passing anything down to my dog. <laughs> Like I'm gonna outlive my dog, and I don't have kids. You do have so. a very cute dog, though, Austin. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. No, I think that's awesome. I think we uh, we definitely covered a lot about what you what you're doing today, and um, you know the different cycles and different journeys. But the one thing we didn't talk much about is the multifamily side. But since you're moving on beyond that, anyway, so I think um, you know I think that's that's perfectly fine. One last question, or, or two questions that we asked our guests, anyways, at the end of the podcast, we're gonna tailor it a little bit for you. For newer investors looking to get into syndication, let's just say syndication specifically, yeah. what, what kind of advice do you have for them when they're looking at these deals, they're evaluating their partners, stuff like that? I think it's really important that they know their partners, right? So I would say find someone or ask to, you know, a chat with someone that's worked with them before that has gone through the full cycle with that person and making sure that you know, they're able to communicate with you properly. Because sometimes I feel like that is a major component of syndications. It's that sometimes there could be a lack of communication because as a, an investor, you really, you want to know what's going on. So if you're always chasing for updates, it's very frustrating and it causes you to worry. It gives you, you know, like anxiety because it's your money and you're just, you know, kind of waiting around for updates, et cetera. So making sure that they have really excellent communication and then also just previous investors that have worked with them before. I feel like that's something, I don't know if everybody does that. Like, hey, who have you worked with before? Can I have a chat with them? Can I see like what other projects that they've invested with you before? And like we do reference checks when we, you know, for work, but we don't really do that for other investors. We just kind of taste it, take it as face value, right? Like whatever they share on like social media, et cetera. So I feel like that's something that people can easily do. Hey, can you give me three names of previous investors that have worked with you? You know, and then just go from there. And then the communication and then also just making sure that they've actually been in the real estate investing world long enough to go and see that they've like gone through the ups and downs, right? Like, I spoke to someone that had started investing in 2020 and they were like super shocked about what's going on. And I just said, well, this is not unfamiliar territory to me. I actually started when the market was down. So making sure that they actually have like the time, you know, sometimes people think, okay, you know, if you invest for three years, you you're full in, it's good enough. And it is, but also like just having that, long-term career in real estate really does make a difference because there are things that pop up that you may not have seen in three years, but if you've been doing it for 10, you'll probably see a lot more, right? A lot of just different situations, different people, things like that. So definitely communication, previous investors, and the time that they've, they've had in real estate. Yeah, no, that that's very true. I, I, I like the previous investors thing and, and obviously know that anyone that's parted with someone in the past is obviously only going to give you people that have had a positive experience with them, but it still helps to like ask that question, mm-hmm. go through that that reference check process, right? And I think too many people just go with people that they see on social media that look like they have a lot of experience, but I think that's the other reality of it. I think yeah. even us as partners, we were probably, um, okay, maybe not the best, but we, we gave the best terms on the first like JV partners that we ever probably did, like mm-hmm. all included, right? We probably gave the most concessions for that, right? And we probably were the most attentive for that. And do we know a lot more now that we didn't know then? Hundred percent, right? But a new investor being a JV partner might not be a bad thing if the deal is good, right? So 
there's kind of uh, grass, the green is got the grass green on, on whatever side you kind of look at, right? So the second question for you, Danielle, is with regards to your business, how do you see it growing or changing in the next two to three years? Definitely lots of changes because I feel like you have to change. Like you cannot just stay in the same type of business. So things need to change for you to grow. So whether it's a different strategy or a different market, et cetera, it has to grow. So for me, I'm really focusing on more passive investing or more passive wealth building strategies where I can focus on my family and my career. I I also have a career. So I really want to be able to make sure that my investments are working, like I'm setting up my systems now and so that they can continue to grow. But I'm also creating a platform for women. We didn't really talk about it, but I'm also the co-founder of the Women Investors Network Canada. And we have chapters across Canada where there are local meetups. We have a Facebook group. We have a monthly book club as well. And I want to be able to create that community in person and online so that women can connect and support each other so that they can provide for their families and for themselves, right? I feel like financial literacy is so important. And like a story I want to share is that when I was 10, my mother, she sold her home at that time because we needed the money. But I always regret like she could have refinanced. Do you know what I mean? So I'm like, ah, so I want people to know that there are different options. You don't necessarily have to sell your home. You can refinance. You can do other creative strategies. And I feel like that's really important for me because I went through it with my mom. She was a single mom at the time and we needed the money. And that was the only way for her to access that that cash was from her home. And so I want people to have like different options, not just like real estate, but I also want to help people learn about stocks, about like other strategies. So so they have like a really comfortable, like safety for their finances. Yeah, no, that that's that's super awesome, right? I think it's important to find a niche of a community that you can inspire. When we started Rise, a lot of it was newer investors who joined and is inspiring people to get started on the real estate investing journey. Obviously, it's grown since then. And I guess sort of the niche that you resonate most with is is inspiring and empowering women on real estate. When you go to these networking events, like the honest truth is 80% of the people are men, right? So it could be a little bit intimidating at times. So it's good that you're having an outlet for them to not only learn, but to jump into real estate as well and attend these events. Again, look, Danielle, really appreciate you jumping on. If people wanted to connect with you, learn more about your journey, potentially join your events or attend your events, how could they best do so? So I am most active on Instagram. So it's at danielle.unsworth. And they can also go to my website, danielleunsworth.com or send me an email, invest at danielleunsworth.com. Very easy to to get a hold of me. In case you guys didn't catch that though, it will still be down at the show notes as always. If you guys enjoyed this podcast episode, as always, leave us a five-star review comment, subscribe, share it, uh, do whatever you can to support the podcast because it helps bring great guests like Danielle out. And until next time, everybody, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.